0: hey everyone welcome to a brand new episode of the behold podcast on the genre equality channel my name is Itzir. i i'm Isa. uh this week we'll be concluding our t- first ever two-part um two-parter episode, yeah. uh, where we will finish up our countdown for the best films of 2022 so far. Um, this is our mid-year report, mm-hmm. breaking down and recommending what you should be catching up on, what has been released uh, in the film schedule in 2022. Keep in mind, though, this is a big caveat. Yeah. These are the films that have been released in Singapore, which is where we live. Yeah. Uh, the films that have been released in Singapore in 2022. So some of these films may have made the festival circuit in 2021, Um, but unfortunately, you know, I don't live in France or Locarno (laughs) or, um, Sundance or whatever, you know, so like I'm not at those festivals, so I can only watch it when they come here. Um, and, and same thing with my co-host La Isa. so these are the films that have been released in Singapore in 2022. Um, so for this 51st episode of Behold, we run down number five. To number one, mm-hmm. um, if you would like to, uh, well, if you haven't caught and you would like to catch our number six to number ten picks, uh, just go to the previous episodes where we, where we broke down all our picks right there. But here we are getting to the creme de la creme, the top five, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been separated into many several uh, many different countries, so it's not just. US-centric as uh, the previous episode was. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of American films here, such as Paul Thomas Anderson's a Licorice Pizza, which is, of course, American, mm-hmm. uh, and Megan Park's The Fallout, which is about a uniquely American problem. Uh, but on the flip side also, we also have uh, Jonas Boho Rasmussen's Flee, an animated documentary about an Afghan refugee mm-hmm. made in Denmark. We also have Joanna Hawke's Souvenir Part 2 uh, made in England and Joachim tries the worst person in the world one of the latest crop of great norwegian films we've been getting in the past few years oh yeah um yeah so the, these were our top 5 picks um is there anything in the top 5 that you feel like we already covered from 6 to 10 that i don't that i got wrong maybe you have a different subjective opinion about anything else in the in the uh, no, know, bottom 5 that i should have pushed up
1: i yeah. think it's pretty much like spot on um, very very honestly yeah I, I don't think I have any differing opinion for that um, mm. maybe and I probably would have said in the last episode I would have shifted they would still all be in top 10 but I would but personally have shifted some stuff around Uh, but for the top oh, yeah, 5 yeah, yeah. Mm. for the top 5 like it's pretty hard to yeah for me I think like Flea and The Fallout are like neck and neck so I would neck have neck, them yeah. shared at number 2 and then we'll skip 3 and then Licorice Pizza comes in um, yes yeah
0: that, that makes total sense I uh, I mean on the other hand I was like heavily debating between number 5 and 6 ooh. Um I was considering whether to push Kamakamon to number 5 and to push Le down to number 6 so yeah
1: okay I, they, I, they're, I, they're about
0: I... equal quality to me as well
1: mm, mm, mm. okay I can see that ooh wow um I, I mean, I love licorice pizza, but I might have bumped come on, come on, up to five, probably.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, that was honestly like my late inclination as well. <laughs> um. So, like... I uh, to to be honest, like just as a disclaimer here, like Lacrosse Pizza probably is tied with number five. Yeah for come on, come on. Mm. Tied la, you know. Yeah. The only reason I, I put it this way is because I was too lazy to shift the rundown and to reschedule things. So, yeah. you know no, it's <laughs> this fine. Is just a pure laziness logistical thing, yeah. Uh,
1: also because we're splitting into two separate episodes, right? So we can't actually we have to you have to correct. make a decision at some point.
0: Correct, correct, correct. And I wanted like come on, come on to like headline an episode, you know what I mean?
1: Mm, agreed. Yeah, Yeah, it deserves Uh, its its spotlight, for sure.
0: Absolutely, you know. But uh, let's begin with our core number five spot, shall we say? Uh, Type for (laughs) number five and six. Um, This is Paul Thomas Anderson's first feature since 2017's Phantom Fred. Um, He returns to the director's chair with Licorice Pizza, and his latest film is a kind of joyous, hazy, nostalgia-inflected, Romantic drama set in California's San Fernando Valley mm-hmm. in the 1970s, and it features knockout debut performances from Elena Haim, mm. um, most, pop, most popularly known as the younger sibling of the Haim uh, pop group slash band, um, alongside Copper Hoffman, who is the son of the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. uh, making his um, acting debut here, you know. Um, and on the surface, I feel like Licorice Pisa is about as far removed uh, from his last film as <laughs> it's possible to get, you know. Um, Phantom Fred was this meticulously staged psychodrama. Um, its mm. visual language was as sumptuous and highly strong as its costuming. Whereas, Licorice Pisa is kind of this hazy, meandering, Extremely funny trip down memory lane, sort of like, yep. you know, this um, photo book uh, snapshots of half strung memories and romantic embellishments. Um, its narrative and romantic tone are, in some ways, uh, kind of a throwback to prime Paul Thomas Anderson, if that's a bit subjective. Like, Paul Thomas Anderson is always <laughs> in his prime, but in my opinion, Paul Thomas Anderson is at his best when his storytelling is more shaggy. It's more loose. It's more lived in. It's more of a collection of half finished anecdotes than a meticulously plotted psychodrama like Phantom Fred was. You know, I, of course, I'm referring to things like Boogie Nights, you know, and mm-hmm. and things or Punch Drunk Love, uh, things like that Paul Thomas Anderson's at it at his height. And this returns Paul Thomas Anderson to the style yeah. that I know and love. Not that I didn't love Phantom Fred I did, but this is what I think Paul Thomas Anderson is best at. Uh, Do you agree and what do you think about uh, Licorice Pizza?
1: Oh, man. Uh, I I think it has felt like it's been so long since we got Anderson in this style. Um, Mm -hmm. And given, I I don't don't know if you can actually call it recency bias because Phantom Trap was like, what, a fair number of years ago. Right,
0: 2017, um, five years. Yeah, ago, yeah, five
1: years ago. So like that was the most recent in my mind, and I haven't watched, I rewatched Boogie Nights anytime recently. I haven't watched Uh, Pan Drunk Love anytime recently. So like mm. for us to, I remember when we headed into the cinema for that, I was just like, oh wow, okay. Uh, the opening kind of scene already kind of very clearly and very strongly sets the tone, uh, and mm. just kind of the visual aesthetics. Like, oh, okay, this. Feels familiar, but at the same time, like there's a strange juxtaposition from what I remember from Phantom Thread. Um yep. so it definitely had a bit of dissonance there, but very quickly. I think like just the the style uh that he brings to Licorice Pizza and the story and just like the the great kind of like character growth and, and action in this very kind of naturalistic style really uh, mm. puts you at ease very quickly. I think is the best mm. way to it.
0: I agree, I agree. Um, the film is actually based on the recollections of Paul Thomas Anderson's friend, mm. uh, also named Gary. His name is Gary Coates, uh, who, much like his cinematic alter ego, you know, who was based on him, was also a child actor and entrepreneur. Um, so the film is centered around this love story between a 15-year-old version of Gary, played by Hoffman, and the 25-year-old Elena, uh, played by Elena Haim,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, meeting when she works at a job at Gary's high school, um, Elena is kind of set upon almost immediately by the (laughs) precocious teen um, whose effortless charm sort of chips away at her um, and her detached resolve to just ignore him, Um, though she makes it clear in no uncertain terms that she is uninterested in him romantically. uh, It really is an astonishing feat from both performers that neither Gary nor Elena come across as creepy or pestering or predatory mm-hmm. um, in this type of mismatched age gap um, type of uh, love story. Yep. Um, Gary is obviously openly attracted to Elena, often to the point of jealousy, which is uh, a big point in the story. But the basis of the relationship is never really sexual, but more of a meeting between two perfectly Compatible personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, their partnership is kind of a strange thing. It is rarely frictionless. Yeah. Um, it's often a source of strife and pain. You know, much like you know, real partnerships in real life. We kind of yearn for connection, but the most intense connections often yield the most catastrophic emotional repercussions. Mm-hmm. And Anderson has always been brilliant at playing with this kind of inherent paradox from the violent business or partnership in like there will be blood or the lunatics or magnolia or the, the lowness of punch drunk love sort of like uh careening through and increasingly surreal world in search of someone to share it with mm-hmm. and rarely have two people belong together on screen uh more than this partnership of gary and elena um even in their most impatient yeah. or downright vindictive moments you know Those moments are there, but they pass, and the intense connection sort of sustains throughout. You know, Um, it's this kind of exhilarating feeling that would feel uh, almost as if, like, okay, we are not—we are in our thirties right now. We're millennials, right? Mm -hmm. So we did not live through San Fernando Valley in California in the (laughs) seventies. We're just, or or just in the seventies in general. We weren't old enough to, you know, um, remember those. Uh, or live through the pop culture moments, yeah. that music, the the fashion styles, and everything. But Licorice Pizza is that type of movie that makes you feel nostalgic for that, even though we didn't live through that era. It makes me feel like I did, yeah. and I miss it. You know, um, <laughs> that's the, that's the magic of Licorice Pizza. Uh, did you think so as well?
1: For sure. I mean, like we, yeah. well, I, I, neither of us were born yet, right? Like this is like mm. this is what our parents' time was, and I don't know if that's it's so specific to that time period and and per- perhaps the locale as well like we wouldn't be able to access that nostalgia via our parents stories either right but yep. there's something yep. uniquely um captured here that that feels very much like memory right like it, it feels like a mm. recollection visually uh you know mm. with all its it's the bells and whistles and flaws that it's captured by memory and kind of like uh puts put, puts a sheen on it Right, that or, or the mm. sheen that nostalgia kind of grants us and I think Anderson has managed to capture that very yep. very aptly um, with the visual style and, and just like the colours that he chooses the kind of softness of the focus um, mm. um, you know the kind of like lingering close-up shots of, of faces and eyes and, and lips mm. like that really feel like a recollection pulled from an old memory right and I, mm. I think it's it's a, a strength of the film for for us to be able to feel nostalgic for a time that we never experienced, for us to be immersed in this world as if it were our own and experience mm. that as an audience watching the story is uh, yep. definitely one of the standout things that I love about the movie.
0: Definitely. Um, I personally have a lot of friends who've seen this film who feel that it is overrated and i think maybe that is a subjective thing of course that like, you know yeah. you're allowed to dislike or like a film or whatever you know but i feel like um this kind of doesn't have a mass appeal but some of maybe the other four films um that we are talking about here primarily because it has this very loose structure that i love from paul thomas anderson yeah. and from what i've come to love in my tv shows as well you know yeah um it is it's storyless it's character driven it often a meanders situation to random situation with very richly defined characters, but not mm-hmm. richly defined story. Um, it's almost like something you will watch in Better Things or something like that. You know. Yeah. Um. And ah, yeah. That's the thing. Like I've sort of noticed this parallel. Like um, when I've recommended this film to friends, if they don't like Better Things, they don't like Licorice Pizza. If they like Better Things, they like Licorice Pizza. It's <laughs> that kind of free free character driven storytelling that it maybe doesn't grab. The casual audience. Um, and secondly, mm-hmm. a lot of people seem to have a problem with the relationship, the age gap in a the relationship. They find it problematic. Yeah. Um. Oh, clearly you don't have a problem with the first part. You like the you like better things and you like the crispy pizza as well. But did you have a problem with the second part? Uh,
1: I think it's it. It was in okay. It, uh, in our current context, right? Mm. Uh, it definitely. Is colored by uh, colored by like the times that we live in, where clearly it is a problematic thing, right? Because there are a lot of um, places where that age gap comes becomes a power play, and that power play eventually becomes predatory in its nature. Uh, mm. But in and of itself, their relationship, especially at the beginning of itself, sure, he's a fifteen-year-old, he's going through as well. I'm, I'm I'm not going to make excuses that boys would be boys, right? Mm. Uh, but they're very Quickly, uh, there is a respect that is formed between the two of them. And at no Mm. point in time is there a power play by either one of them, right? Like, they are evenly matched throughout. So, the age aside, right? Like, it doesn't feel like the dynamic there feels, like, abusive or predatory in those manners. They match each Mm. other, you know, jab for jab, punch for punch. When it comes down to it, especially in a lot of the scenes where they are in conflict with each other. Uh, the emotional tension between the two as they try and negotiate what their relationship is is very palpable and very visceral in a lot of scenes that we get Mm. right and we we kind of like oscillate between moments like that and like Mm. the the more fun more open more free kind of memories that they share um so i think that it feels far less problematic while watching it than me telling you the synopsis of it and then you going like oh wait a minute that feels like really off right Mm, um mm -mm. so uh yeah you know so like i would still give the film a chance uh regardless just because i think like on paper it sounds problematic in Mm. in watching it and actually seeing what the story is about and how these characters um negotiate their their strange kind of i don't know a bond or attraction to each other in mm-hmm. a in mm-hmm. largely a non-sexual way uh yeah is is very nuanced and very worth like exploring
0: yes yeah um highly agree with you on all points um i didn't find the relationship problematic as executed it could have been by a more you know by a less a lesser director, mm, but for in sure. Paul Thomas end, you know, like the characters are so richly defined, the relationship is so richly defined that you understand where both are coming from. Yeah, um, there isn't an imbalance in power dynamics, and he he handled it sensitively and perfectly. I think so. Too. Um, any yeah, any final thoughts on uh licorice pizza before we move on to our number four pick?
1: Oh man, uh, I I do uh, licorice pizza. I think is a prime example of 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 your kind of growing, um. Partiality coming to coming oh, out, uh, yeah. no, but, uh, of character-driven stories. I think more than mm, more than yeah. anything else, uh, you know, mm. and like so much of what we have ranked so highly in, like, uh, I think last year and this year in particular has been in yep. that particular direction, and we are mm. getting such great, great pieces of art um mm. coming out from that. Uh, direction or, or that kind of like point of view of wanting to tell stories from the c- characters themselves instead of having, you know, your completely plot-driven one. Not to say that isn't good. A lot of um, mm. almost everything else in our top five here uh, is in, in that particular camp, right? But yeah, I, I think like yeah. Licorice Pizza and Better Things are easily like prime examples of why uh, you and now myself as well, I have started leaning towards enjoying uh, and and mm. and um and and recommending such content. Uh shout out yeah. to Johnny Green for an amazing soundtrack as well. Oh yeah,
0: he's he's been doing a lot of uh, the best Paul Thomas Anderson scores. Um There Will Be Blood is the first time I heard Johnny Green do a a cinematic score. Yeah. Um you know and then I was just I kept being blown away by him. Like I I personally feel like he's one of the best composers or the most unorthodox composer, mm-hmm. uh, working in cinema right now. You should give him a shot, you know. And I know a lot of people know him for the music scene, now, But yeah, man, he's making, uh, he's giving uh Trent Reznor a run for his money. Oh uh, yeah. In, yeah, in the score sense, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, moving on to number four, we have um a film called The Fallout, uh, which was initially released uh, in South by Southwest in twenty twenty one, but only released on HBO Max this year for wide release, so I'm only counting the wide release. Um, it stars Jenna Ortega, Maddie Ziegler, and Niles Fitch, who play California high schoolers brought together by their shared experience during a violent school shooting rampage. Mm. Um, it's kind of a horrendous sign of the times that the school shooting plot is already um, a very well-traveled movie trope. Um, there have been so many films made about school shootings, from Elephant to We Need to Talk About Kevin. Um, even Natalie Portman's Vox Lux um, also was about a school shooting. You know, um, and we keep all the reviews for the Fallout or all those movies keep saying like you know they're timely, they're timely, they're timely. Um, unfortunately, that is true because um, school shootings have now become timeless. Considering what's happening in America, if there is a school shooting every other week, um, sometimes more than that. You know, most recently, the massacre in a Texas elementary school shook up the world, you know. So, you know, a lot of us outside of America don't understand what the problem is or what America's fascination with guns are, the Second Amendment, you know. Um, This is a problem that American politicians, at least on the right, claim that it's unfixable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they are the only country in the world with this problem. So, clearly it is fixable. It's a unique problem for them, you know. Um, But, Politics aside, the astute and affecting the fallout uh, by writer-director Megan Park sort of zeroes in on a more character-driven angle to this. It follows mostly Jenna Ortega as a female student struggling to find her footing after surviving the campus massacre. Um, Among all the films delving into this very charged territory, I think Megan Park's film stands apart in its combination of low-key intimacy, uh, and as its title suggests, uh, I have an unflinching focus on the aftermath of the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, only three adults appear on screen. Um, their roles are key, but decidedly supporting in a in a teen-centric drama, which foregrounds uh, um, this group of superb young actors led by Jenny Ortega. You know, They live in this California suburb where Park has set her debut feature. It is kind of multicultural and privileged. The kids don't want for comfort, although some of them do make do with absentee parents. Uh, The lead character is the 16-year-old girl, uh, Vada, played by Ortega, who Mm -hmm. doesn't fall into the latter category. Her folks here, um, as she tells her friends, are really good parents. Um, She is a sharp-witted high schooler who basically falls out a bit in the morning, you know, just like a, a a normal girl, she lives with her whip-smart younger sister, Amelia. Uh, their differences notwithstanding, they have a really close bond, mm-hmm. um, and when Amelia finds herself in need, the person she texts is a big sister. Uh, but soon enough, you know, Vada's kind of regular life goes through something that upends every aspect of her life and creates distance in her closest relationships, particularly with her parents and with her younger sister. Um, shots ring out in the school, and for six terrifying minutes, she is cowering in a bathroom stall with two students she only knows by sight. One is a glamorous Instagram influencer type girl named Mia, played by Maddie Ziegler, um, wh- uh, about whom she'd just been texting something snarky about her, you know, to her best friend Nick. Uh, there's also Quentin, played by Niles Fitch, who stumbles into the girl's bathroom covered in blood, having just witnessed his brother being shot, you know. um. This is the setup for The Fallout, um, and then it examines the psychological trauma and how how these various kids process them or don't process them uh, for the remainder of the film. Um, having just seen The Fallout, um, it's been like six months for me, but you, it's pretty fresh in your mind. Um, yeah. What do you think about Megan Park's uh, debut film here?
1: Uh, it is... It is heartbreaking um, mm. to to have to talk about this film... Uh and and keep going on about oh it's timely it's timely like mm. man uh how many times does this story need to be told before something mm. is done you know um but that aside and and talking about the movie in and of itself uh I love the Fallout for its very intimate examination of um the 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 well essentially the PTSD uh that comes mm. from going through something as traumatic as a shooting in in a school. Uh, I love the fact that so much of the story is carried in very personal moments between two people and their conversations. Mm. Uh, That, to me, is the highlight of it because that interplay between the characters uh, as they each kind of struggle in their own way and try and find a middle ground to either cope or to heal or, or mm. to to distract themselves so that they can keep going and keep waking up every morning uh, without falling yeah. apart, is the strongest uh, pull of this movie itself. Um, the yep. performances all around are phenomenal. I think Jenna Ortega's very subtle mood Changes mm. uh, as yep. she tries to sort out and process what she has been through, and even mm. like uh, I mean, all around the cast is, is great, but Jenna Ortega, great. in particular, as Veda, is um, it is a it is strange to say, but it is a joy to watch how nuanced and powerful her performance is in this particular film. Uh, mm. The chemistry that she has with the rest of the cast and the rest of the characters is very palpable. And it feels very real, uh, and all of that lends to a very powerful message. But that message is never, uh, is never hammered over your head, right? Like this mm. is a very real representation of what a a, a survivor's um story mm. might possibly be, and that is why the fallout, I think, is uh deserves a spot in our top ten
0: yes yes you know um at every turn in the film the the youth and the innocence of megan park's characters just kind of pierce the suburban surface of you know a tranquility you know the director i'm I'm very surprised by her because um looking at her filmography she's only directed music videos before um primarily she is Billie eilish's uh, uh, Mm go-to music video director um and other than one particular instance she doesn't quite dive into music video tricks but there is one song driven music video maneuver <laughs> that she that she does that advances the story to a degree yeah uh, but otherwise it is quite a quiet drama you know yeah. um it has an understated score understated performances mainly park lets her actors interact um it has deadpan humor um the pain that they're experiencing is not spelled out for you Yeah. You know? um their hormones are surging and their flirtations uh are ho- you know, are there, but it's all very natural. It's all very regular and relatable. You know, Vada, um, as you said, is in particular excels at playing chill mm-hmm. and deflecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ortega's beautiful performance, uh, understands the uh, nothing to nothing to look at here, facade, you know. Yeah. Um, while still exuding some of the, you know, the quiet chinks in her armor without her speaking about it. Yeah. We feel the sting of resentment when she watches her mother and sister being silly in the kitchen, uh, that sort of spontaneity now feels foreign to her. Yeah. Um, but as defense mechanisms give way to something, you know, more open-hearted as she and Mia, who were kind of, you know, natural, um, high school hierarchy enemies mm-hmm. gravitate towards each other. Um, so via text and video calls and then chats. And then in real life, the, uh, they meet at you know the gated property where yeah. where Mia essentially lives alone, and they hold the world at bay, you know, putting off their return to school as long as their parents let them. And for Mia, I think that means indefinitely because um her fathers, both of them are artists, are away in Japan, and apparently her traumatic experience isn't enough to bring even one of them back home. They're almost always gone. She notes over you know um wine with uh with a friend, you know that they then they just enjoy you know. Uh, chill time in the jacuzzi in the pool in the sauna yeah. uh, when she is not uh, attending school or attending dance class um, you know um, as Vada kind of blitz out during the awkward get-thing-to-know-each-other phase Mia is Uh, much gentler than the sexualized image she projects in the dance videos she posts on on, (laughs) on social media. Um, And Vada might also be figuring out that the girl she's long considered out of a league with her 82,000 Instagram followers is in truth kind of friendless and lonely as well. Um, This is not a poor little rich girl cliche. I think actress-dancer Ziegler, who is also a music video veteran she does a lot of yeah. CS stuff um fully inhabits the role uh, she feels soulful and intelligent and Mia is practiced in also you know hiding her ache mm-hmm. the small charade that she enacts uh, the first time she welcomes ba- Vada to her house is a brilliant bit of screenwriting that tells us everything in a f- few wordless seconds yeah um everything is great i even have to compliment the people who play um Vada's parents um Oh, Julie yeah. Bowen, who plays the quote-unquote white and anxious mother, um, and then the Latino dad of A Few Words, uh, played by John Ortiz, they kind of vacillate between hyper-attentive hovering and then stepping back to give her space, never quite sure how mm-hmm. much space to give. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a very long time in terms of the movie running time before they send her to therapy, but the fallout yep. is not... An orthodox therapy film, yeah. precisely because I think Megan Park is uninterested in therapy speak. Mm. The, the two psychotherapy sessions uh, she includes are potent. Uh, with strong and uh, you know, Shailene Woodley, I really really like her. I think yeah. she does she does well in a small role here. But mostly, it's about just focusing on the facial expressions and nuances of the kids. You know, mm. a lot of this film reminds me a bit of. Um, Man. Okay, I'll get back to that thought later. Um, you <laughs> go ahead.
1: Uh. yeah. Uh just, yeah. just a point about like John Ortiz and, and Julie Bowen, right? Like again, yep. like you said, uh together with Shane mm-hmm. Woodley, the only three kind of adults that we see in the film. Uh mm-hmm. Julie Bowen took me a moment, right? Because my my association with her for, uh, as as um Claire Dumphy. Yeah. As a mother figure, right? Like that mm. immediate Kind of like recollection and even a kind of connection there, uh, had me reeling for like a couple of seconds, right? But the more, but just like it is so amazing to see her in another mother role of this kind of uh seriousness, right? And mm. she does a phenomenal job, you know. And I I think like the in in my mind the two kind of like major conversations that Vada has with uh, her mom and her dad, uh are like really really powerful in their own way and like mm. it showcases like a very important kind of uh step in her her healing process right something that Mia doesn't get and that's something that uh plays out as well uh in that yes. uh, in that manner and like it is so I, I I think credit to to Park to deciding to keep it about um the, the, the kids Right. Mm. Because it's so easy to just like okay, you know what? Like the a big part of it has to do with the adults, right? Like the adults in the school, they're supposed to be the responsible ones. Right. In the fallout of it, it is easy to shift that around to Mm. add more drama, to extend the story, to get more people involved. But the restraint in that I think is testament to her very clear vision of what she wanted to to tell here.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. Um, what I wanted to say earlier, and now I have had time to think about it and articulate it, is that I think the Fallout doesn't politicize the school shooting aspect of it in a, in a sense that, you know, sometimes if you put uh, political movies like, you know, your Aaron Sorkin's or whatever, tend to alienate one side or another side. Yeah. Instead, this just focuses on empathy for characters and what they go through, which allows perhaps people who disagree with gun control or whatever to understand the other side the other point of view, it doesn't politicize the agenda much, like what I was about to say. Um, never really. Sometimes, always. I think. Yeah. Uh, in its approach to abortion, and as well as in the actors' approach to their characters, like they don't over dramatize the trauma and stuff like that. You know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's what I wanted to say. It just reminded me of never really, sometimes, always. Mm-hmm. Um. It's a. I love that film, but it's a hard title to remember. That's why I had to Google <laughs> it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's. Despite the fact. I that was confused. Repeat. Like.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I always confused. It's like never sometimes, it never rarely. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I really, really love the Fallout. I think you should check it out. It's yes. available in Singapore on HBO Go if you want to watch it there. Mm-hmm. Um, any final thoughts on the Fallout before we move on to our number three?
1: Uh again, shout out to Phineas for a great soundtrack. Uh very understated, mm. very chill, uh, very yeah. chill, but extremely apt, right? Like every kind of like emotional beat is uh, is elevated because of the 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 song choice or the soundtrack in the background. Uh, like yeah. it's so important for the mood making and allows mm. the actors to do what they need to do with as little or as much um, dialogue as they are given. Uh, fantastic mm. stuff.
0: Definitely. Um, now is our number three film, um, it, it's about a similarly heavy topic. Um, the film is called Flea. It is a poetic and engrossing animated documentary coming out of Denmark. It is directed by Jonas Poho Rasmussen. Um, this is a very moving film and it is a true story of a young man called Amin Nawabi. Uh, now, the name in the, the character name is made up yep. to protect the identity of the real person. Mm-hmm. But Amin, uh, the character, is a refugee from Afghanistan who fled the country as a child uh, along with his family following the Taliban's takeover—the um, first Taliban takeover, not the more recent one—as um, recounted by Amin to his friend, who is Rasmussen, the filmmaker. Uh, we follow his harrowing journey from Watan Kabul to living in poverty as an illegal immigrant in Russia, mm-hmm. to a frightening boat trip across the Baltic, to a border crossing through dark and freezing woods, to being held in an Estonian detention centre for months, uh, before finally being smuggled into Denmark, where he found asylum under false pretenses. Um, Now he's on the eve of his marriage to to his soon-to-be husband. um, And Amin is valiantly trying to unpack the painful secrets of his past, his survivor's guilt, his fears about his family's reaction to his homosexuality, Mm -hmm. and, of course, the lingering psychic damage of his ordeal. It's an intimate first-person confessional that almost serves as the therapy session, a way for Amin to shed the burdens of his suppressed emotions and memories. Um, This documentary is unique because it blurs the traditional boundaries of documentary by combining uh, more standard stuff like archival news footage, yeah. alongside beautiful animation. Um, so Rasmussen has crafted this kind of wrenching memoir that probes the traumas of war and displacement in some very intimate and powerful ways. It is mm-hmm. told with ample empathy and without sensationalization. Um, Flea is mostly a humanist refugee story that is much in the same vein as uh, Persepolis, Yes, uh, shall we say. Um, what do you think about Flea?
1: Uh, first off, yep. really enjoyed sorry, really enjoy the animation style. Uh, mm. for all of that. Like as someone who uh, is constantly watching anime, right? Like that's one style. Like there are moments in time where uh, you know coming across something so good like flea and having it in a different animation style, uh, with like it's very kind of like solid kind of graphic novel feel to it, where everything feels like inky and sketchy, the colors are uh, uh appropriate for the scene at hand right all that kind of like brushwork and line work uh adds to the tonality of the film right uh, mm. and that is important because as a recollection right it allows for the scenes to take a more surreal i guess quality to it without taking away from the the realness of the story from from the uh how grounded the story is and and the um the experiences that I mean goes through. Uh, I think yeah. those work very well hand in hand. Uh, so that uh, really kind of like caught me off the bat, you know. Mm. Uh the story itself is fraught with so much. Uh it it's it's not easy to watch, right? Like hearing a story like this and just like the very kind of like intimate and personal details that are being shared here. Um, you know, from very, very kind of like small things about like the daily life before all of this happens to even like how they they had to live or had to cope. Um, small kind of like observations that I mean recalls as part of the story are all incredibly intimate and therefore uh, um, heart, more heartbreaking because you begin to hear that as not sign of like some kind of like banner waving about mm. refugees or about war or anything of the sort but again yep, yep. much like the fallout it is a intimate telling of a story uh in yep. in the most vulnerable and un uh, unvarnished sense possible and that i think is what makes flea so good
0: mm, yes uh totally agree with that man um you know, throughout the director Rasmussen sort of never loses focus on humanity. He is not telling an abstract story about an abstract refugee or yeah. the abstract concept of uh refugee rights or immigration and things like that. Mm-hmm. But he's telling the story of a friend, a fellow human being he knows personally. Yeah. Um so the rapport between the two and the quiet honesty with which Amin speaks and the respectful and obviously deeply affectionate way in which Rasmussen tells the story makes this something um special Um, uh, this is a uh, film like you said that i think wouldn't have worked in any other medium but animation because yeah. in an hour and a half we come to know mean, intimately without actually setting eyes on him at all it's mm. an ingenious yeah. way to tell the story that's both extraordinary and also shockingly commonplace yeah. um only with the teller's anonymity tactfully preserved um and so the tale itself can be hauled into the light you know without yeah you know, this kind of distracting, like, you know, like you see those documentaries with those guys like blurred out or hidden in the shadows and it sort of takes you out of it. Yeah. Um, so this is less of a sociological case of refugees or war or displacement than a psychological portrait. Um, and it's a film that is both probing and tactful um, and gentle uh, and it gives intimate attention to one particular refugee story, while reminding us that Amin also stands in for millions upon millions of others across the globe who are subject to dehumanization as they simply seek a safer life. Um, mm-hmm. Any final thoughts about uh, flee? You know what were the standout aspects of it, of the story, of the animation, maybe? Um, before we move on to our number two.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think like there were a couple bits of animation that really were breathtaking, you know. It's um, mm. this particular scene of refugees in a container that I found to be just stunning, right? Just visually, the way to... um, It was so... Evo- without giving anything away, I guess, like, it was so evocative, I found myself holding my breath, right? Uh, in uh, that particular moment, yeah. um, you know. And, like, they're just these... Uh, such painfully heartbreaking moments that... Um, it, it, it is a very flat style of, of animation, right? Uh, mm. But the animators were skilled enough to portray facial expressions, which is a big and very difficult mm. part of getting animation right, especially when it comes to dramatic works. You know, uh, uh, like, technology has increased so much, uh, you know, uh, the skills of animators has increased so much, but, like, constantly, even big-budget stuff struggled, to capture nuance in the face and 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 facial expression, right? Uh, and for it to be to come about that way, uh, as uh, with a very flat style, is I think a very very. It, it's an amazing feat, right? To do that in the style that they've chosen, because like so much of that is still narration. Uh, you know, uh, like there's there isn't as much dialogue from actual characters themselves. Um, so, mm. like, like kudos to the animation team. Like that, really, it was very tight. I, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it because it's not something that you see accomplished very often.
0: Mm, definitely, um, agree with all of that. Free, one of my favorite films of. Technically last year, but also this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can watch Flea on the Projector Plus if you live in Singapore. Um, I'm not sure where else it's available. I think you can rent it on VOD on Amazon as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so check it out if you want to. Uh, Flea one of the best uh, animated and documentary features. Uh, of the of the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, now i move on to number two, which I'm going to give a solo review to. Um, the Souvenir Part Two. Um, is a great film, but unfortunately not available on digital, so I was unable to. Uh, pass a copy along to ISA. So I'm gonna be doing this review based mm-hmm. on uh what I saw at the Projector. Um as it, again you can watch uh the souvenir part two on the Projector Plus as well. Yeah. Um the souvenir, the first one, I mean, not part two, was in my opinion, one of the best films of 2019. Mm. Unfortunately, I didn't see it in 2019, so it didn't make my best (laughs) of this or anything. I only caught it in 2021, so it was a very late thing for me. Uh, But it is written and directed by a filmmaker called Joanna Hogg. Uh, The movie was a semi-autobiographical memoir of uh, the director's own experiences in film school. Mm -hmm. It is specifically about a painful period when the director... Uh, Joanna Hawk. Um here her proxy is a character called Julie. Mm-hmm. Um she she falls in love and was almost ruined by a manipulative heroin junkie. Yep. Um the heroin junkie claims that he worked for the Ministry of Home Affairs as some sort of you know secret agent spy things. And mm-hmm. because like she was in love, she kind of bought the story, not knowing that whenever she was, he was out or uncontactable, he was actually just doing heroin. Um the souvenir part two picks up in the aftermath of that doomed relationship. As she deals with grief and attempts to process what happened to her yeah. by making a graduate film called The Souvenir. Uh, yep, yeah, The Souvenir Part 2 is about the making of The Souvenir Part 1, <laughs> uh, exploring how an artist's finest work is often rooted in truthful experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was one of the best films in general uh not just meta films but one of the best films in general that i've seen in in 2022 i think um joanna Hogg's work here puts the lie you know the lie that observational or heavily improvised films are easy
2: mm-hmm.
0: it is not you know there's an enormous amount of extraordinary control here and emotional control uh much of it expressed to uh judy's uh judy's life you know and especially through the period accuracy of this um and the ebbing and flowing of a post-loss depression as she tries to as she tries to work out her depression through the art of filmmaking, you know. Mm-hmm. Um it's all in Julie's uh physical evolution. Uh, Julie is played by uh Toda Swinton's daughter. Man, um I sort of forgot her name. Uh but she's incredible in it. She's as good as a she's as good as good as a mother. Uh, Honor Swinton Byrne uh is her name. Uh fantastic piece of acting here. Um yeah. Uh, this is, uh, a film about filmmaking as art, as industry, and as identity as well. You know? mm-hmm. um, Julie's graduation film. You know, as I mentioned, titled "Survivor." Um, also shares that title uh, of the first half of um Joanna Hogg's "Do uh two parter here. Um, yeah. part two is Hawk looking back on that time in her life, but also looking back on the first film itself. Mm. and what it would have looked like if she had tried to make that first film when she was 28 instead of 48. Mm. Um, Autobiography and commentary sort of interweave seamlessly uh, with the graduation film as Julie's effort to synthesize her experiences through cinema history and borrowed iconography. um, You know, in... In the end, you know, when when Julie is screening her the souvenir part one for her for her film school friends, it becomes a sort of full blown fantasy sequence. Yeah, so, you know this kind of weird magpie ness of the Wizard of Oz and French New Wave and a bunch of other references. Uh, yet it still has the burgeoning of Julie's own voice. You know, the voice of a, of a new fledgling filmmaker. Realizing that she has to tap into herself to tell an honest story,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and whether she's making money from commercial films or music videos or, or making honest uh, art house films like this, you know, Julie has found her calling here. Um, ultimately, uh, the souvenir part two is Joanna Hawk looking at Julie's next steps, even as she becomes more of a fictional character than a proxy. Uh, yet you know, it's not about anything as simple as moving past grief or moving past trauma. Um, it's deeper than that. It's about how art helps you through that, but maybe not entirely past that, you know. Yeah. Uh the final moments of the souvenir part two is probably my favorite final scene of a film in in, in the 21st century. Um it's mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's a great final scene that ties it all up beautifully. Uh. Mm-hmm. Um the souvenir part two uh is my number two film, but I think a lot of people might not like it, so my recommendation comes with a bit of a of bit of an asterisk here. <laughs> um, it requires a bit of, a, a, bit of a, a bit of a cinephile to sort of appreciate some of the references being made here. Um, yeah. I would say that if you enjoyed Irma Vep, you will enjoy the souvenir part two. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about it, Yeah. Um, So yeah, uh, go check out the souvenir part two on the Projector Plus. It's available for rent there uh, for only fifteen bucks, I believe, and you can keep it for the weekend. Uh, but yeah, highly recommended. Also available on VOD on you know the usuals like your Amazon Primes and all of that. Mm. Uh, now we are moving on to the number one film of the mid year. Um, maybe the number one film of the year. You know, it's it's gonna be hard to displace this one, in my opinion. When I when I saw this back in February, yeah. Um, actually, I saw this in late January. I wrote my review in early February. I already like decided straight up this was like my <laughs> number one num- my number one film of the year or, or of the mid year, You know. Yeah. I think it's primarily because like I think until recent years, r- uh, romantic comedies used to be reliable crowd pleasers. Mm. Um, and Yet outside of a few notable standouts like The Big Sick or Silver Linings Playbook or stuff like that, past decade yeah. has sort of been a wasteland for the once-dependable genre. Um, rom-coms have atrophied. They are a tired pile of old tropes and fairy tales mm-hmm. played out by pretty people who fight and flirt and invariably make it work by the third act. Yeah. But just when you think the tried and trusted formula is finally done and dusted, 2020, 2022 comes along with a pair of kind of rousing rom-com masterpieces to reinvigorate the waning genre. Mm-hmm. First, as we've talked about, Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, you know, yeah, uh, is one of them. Now comes a new, in my opinion, instant classic of the genre from acclaimed Norwegian author Joachim Trier mm-hmm. uh, called The Worst Person in the World. His latest film... Is a modern twist on a classically constructed character portrait of contemporary life in Oslo. He's done this a lot. All his other, all his other <laughs> films are about uh, character-driven dramas in contemporary Oslo. Yeah. Um. And it chronicles four years in the life of again uh, a character named Julie. Uh. This time a star-making performance from um the Ka- Khan's Best Actress winner Renee Re- uh, I do not pronounce his last name Renee Re- Rensv. I
1: guess I'm not sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but she's great. Julie is great. Yes, the the actress that plays Julie is fantastic. Um, and The Worst Person in the World examines this one young woman's quest for love and meaning in the modern world. Uh, it is fluently told in 12 chapters, book ended by a prologue and an epilogue. Um, This film is kind of this finely tuned character study that doubles as an empathetic essay Mm -hmm. on the millennial condition, something that I think we both can identify with. Uh, We learn that a 20-something Julie Mm -hmm. is a flaky mess burdened (laughs) by indecision. She is an A-plus medical student before deciding suddenly that psychology is her calling. After she pursues that for, for a time, she decides to reinvent herself as a photographer. Shortly thereafter, she concludes that her passion actually... Is as a writer. Um, Similarly, her romantic relationships are determined seemingly by whims and phases. Mm -hmm. She is a character in flux, Um, perhaps insufferable in other hands, but relatable and endearing when helmed by this particular actress who gives a very nuanced performance here. I think Julie's biggest fear appears to be a future set in stone in which her decisions will define an irreversible roadmap. Um, And as commitment-phobic as she is, she does fall for a Gen X comic book artist uh, named Axel, uh, played by Anders uh, Danielson Lee. Um, she is charmed by his kind of older man surety and his certainty of how they're meant to be. However, roadblocks pop up when he, convinces, when he confesses that he wants kids yeah. and Julie does not, um, at least not in the near future. And he argues that most people who have kids without sorting out their lives first, but she wants to do more of her life before kids. She can't articulate what she wants to do, yeah. but it's something. And I think a lot of people find it annoying, but I find it very relatable.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, <laughs> and for all of Julie's talks of not wanting to settle down, it's actually Julie who's kind of stuck in her ways, you know? Yeah. Um, and then she meets this guy called um Ivan, uh, an alluring stranger she meets at a party in a sequence so perfectly choreographed that it somehow manages to mimic the actual serotonin rush of Falling for someone in real time. <laughs> um, but two actors play out one of the most delightful meet that um, that is kind of the wittiest, most perverse take on that rom-com trope in years. Yeah. Uh, in yet another bravura segment later on, in which love literally puts the entire universe on pause. Mm-hmm. Julie decides to leave the heartbroken Gen X Axel. Uh, and then she finds Ivan, you know, someone who doesn't want kids either and also floats through his career without any foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sees she sees him as a perfect partner where she can just be her true self without any unwanted acts, no pressure. But does Julie really prefer someone who's there to confirm her worldview? Or does she want someone who can challenge her? Yeah. I think whip smart as she is, Julie is not unaware of her flaws. She knows she's stuck in her rut. Um, she's working as an assistant in a bookstore, waiting for inspiration to start. You know, um, she even tries her hand at fiction, publishing like a cat person like me too era short story that goes mildly viral, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it is another character that refers to themselves as the worst person in the world, but the title encapsulates how Julie beats herself up over failings and errors that are nothing less or nothing more than simply being human, or simply being millennial. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, you're millennial as well. Did you did you relate to the struggles of Julie in? The worst person in the world as much as i did
1: yeah for sure i i think like i have i have had my finger in many pies uh, over the years just like trying to understand where mm. best to be. i mean like, i've done all sorts of stuff at i guess if you can call it a career right um yep. so i i do i do definitely understand that desire to find a place that's yours right or a thing that is yours uh what your your purpose is what your raison d'être is right like um and and that part i can certainly kind of understand i think um julie's story is is an interesting one because at the end of the day she needs those um she needs those partners or rather she sees those partners as mirrors to allow her to um, see where she is in life, right? Uh, sometimes that realization comes after the fact, after the relationship. Sometimes it comes within, you know, conflict within the relationship. And I think like those are very kind of key moments in the movie themselves and seeing them play out, how she pieces those things together um,
3: mm. or, or
1: tries her best to piece those things together because, you know, she never nece- uh, it never feels like she has it all together at any one given point in time. Uh, even at the end yeah, yeah even at the end right but like yeah. there is a sense of kind of like progress you know mm. uh and like it's it's one of those things where because she goes from partner to partner it seems uh um or at least from what we we are, are told to the the film itself uh they become kind of like uh, uh, road mar- markers or uh, milestones within her own growth as a person as she comes to terms yep. with you know her desire to at, be good at what she does but at mm. the same time having own, an almost crippling not anxiety necessarily but almost a crippling fear that it is not what she's supposed to be doing right so like it leads to all this exploration which is tied to her partners which ends up bringing up a lot of questions that she has to confront both within herself and with her partners you know Mm. and all of that as complicated as that sounds as as uh deep as that sounds is something that um isn't doesn't bubble on the surface necessarily right it is something Mm. that as an audience member you glean from her interactions with other people uh, and and that is very powerful in both in terms of um uh, renee's performance as well mm. as the key moments that um are, are, are shown in the film itself right because in in mm. a film like this there are so many possible scenes you could possibly show to tell the mm. story right but the ones that are chosen seem so apt to Bring the point across without again beating you over the head about it. Oh, like this is her problem. Um, and her winning back as actress is not at all a surprise because it is extremely mm. difficult to have all these things uh effervesce to the audience mm. while in this extremely kind of like uh, understated naturalist style of of acting. Oh man, so good, so so good. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I love that. And again, much like I think, um, you know, licorice pizza, uh, or even Fallout for the matter. Like, uh, worst the worst person in the world is the most kind of. Oh man, I don't know. It's the most slice of life, I guess. If, if struggling mm. for vocabulary here, uh, and yep. like those slices are handpicked to tell a very kind of like specific growth arc for Julie and you know as you kind of follow along you are both invested and frustrated mm. and and you know there's a lot of like you feel her her, her how lost she is and you feel like her heartbreak when she has to move away or she has to drop a relationship or whatever the choices that she makes you feel those things very very keenly right and it's all because mm. of the moments in time that are shown to us as audience members
0: Yes, yes, yeah, you know. Um there's this part in the movie that I think kind of encapsulates all that, right? Yes. There is this part when Axel is asking her about having kids and Julie admits that it's not that she's just not ready. Mm-hmm. She's not convinced that she'll ever want to be ready. Yeah. You know, um what has to happen first? Axel asks, right, in frustration. Mm-hmm. And then she says, I don't know. I need to do more first. Mm-hmm. And I think most millennial adults still waiting for that official certification of adulthood will kind of wince in recognition yeah. um, at the wonderment of what is the mark of a grown-up? Is it having a baby? Is it buying a house? Do you have to truly know yourself? Can you ever? Um, In essaying Julie like that, a character that is kind of opaque, mm. shaped shaped by everything around her, but... Vocally resistant to influence, Renee has this tricky assignment that she nails with um a remarkable fluidity and grace. She is the same in constant, she's constantly inconstant, you know, from yeah. one chapter to the next. She is maturing at one point and then receding in alternating stages. And yet she is sympathetic. Uh ob- because of her willful irresolution, you know. Um, yeah. it outside of his non-judgmental exploration of millennial anxiety, the film also presents many sharply insightful segues into discussions of contemporary society. Mm -hmm. Um, Axel, for example, his provocative and offensive comics uh, Running a Fall of New Wave Gen Z Feminists Mm -hmm. um, is hilarious. Um, Also hilarious is his very X-rated comic is adapted into a G-rated cartoon for kids. (laughs) Uh, Sans his satirical commentary... You know, and there is the kind of performative wokeness of um Ivan's uh X Um, the worst person in the world tackles some very tricky discussions with uncanny humor and eye-opening sensitivity, and finally with heartbreaking frankness. Um, in 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 a climactic sequence that I, or conversation that I won't spoil. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a discussion with Axel where where I don't I don't say why they're having this conversation, but. Axel is admitting to his own existential securities as, as a Gen Xer and fears for a future that won't include him. Um, and it might be one of the more moving scenes of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a film that doesn't seek to make declarative statements about what is right or wrong in the world today. You, know, you can go watch an Aaron Sorkin or an Adam McKay movie for that. It just honestly portrays uh, a human experience of navigating an uncertain world with quite uncommon empathy. You know, it's opening quirky rom-com comedy routine gives way to something much richer in the middle and towards the end. Mm -hmm. And it's startlingly observant and a poignant view of millennial culture and how life just kind of comes at you fast. The worst person in the world kind of vibrates with real life, like you said, the slice of life realness. Mm -hmm. It's a film so fresh and unfettered to rom-com cliche that it might actually reshape your conception of what rom-coms can be Um, I love how it portrays the growth of a person without ever showing you that a person is ever finally complete Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. um you can mature and you can recede into immaturity at alternating stages. We all do that. You know, it's it's something that happens to Julie and it's something that happens to us. Yeah. And the worst person in the world is very honest about that. Like it's not the usual coming of age progression where you come of age and then you're a person. Yeah. Julie is still becoming a person and I think all of us are still becoming the person we want to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh
1: yeah. I, I when when you first recommended this film, uh the title itself gave me a very different idea of what this film could possibly be. Uh, Mm. You know, at no point in time does it feel like you are necessarily confronting or watching the worst person in the world. That person never appears, uh, Mm. according to at least my expectations, right, of what that could possibly be, you know. Uh, And it turns out that there is so much commonality that one can find within Julie, in portions of my own life, at least, uh, Mm. that... It makes you... It, it, it's a curious thing. I'm actually very curious why the title is called What It Is. Uh, It mm. is certainly eye-catching. It certainly sets up expectations and gives you something extremely different in its content itself. Uh, Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, Julie is an every person and amazingly, that is what makes this one of the best films of this year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the title sort of refers to the idea that all of us in our insecurity... Um and at our lowest moments think that we are the worst person in the world. Although we're mm-hmm. clearly not like yeah. you know. Uh but you know, sometimes we feel that way mm-hmm. and it's okay. You know, you, you can grow past it and you can feel that way again. Yeah. It happens to all of us. It even happens to the Gen X Axel. Yeah. Um, who for a supporting character has a really, really great arc in this film as well, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. A- any any closing thoughts, maybe like outside of Julie, what else did you what's, what else struck? Struck you about the film?
1: Oh man, I I really enjoyed uh, both Axel and uh, and uh, Ivan. Uh, Like I think these two particular male characters, and kind of like not necessarily a tug of war. There's no active tugging going on, Uh, Mm. but you know the pull that they have between Julie, especially I think in the second act of the of the film, uh, Mm. is so is fascinating. Right, like on the one hand, there is Axel's kind of like success, I guess, uh, if we could call it that, um, that attracts yeah. Julie in the, in the interim, and the other kind of like very personable, um, uh, 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 Ivan, who is, you know, like that sequence that you mentioned earlier, that kind of like mm-hmm. overnight instant romance. Uh, Mm. that kind of giddy excitement of it, like it's so Mm. polarizing that it's easy to understand what Julie, uh, has to uh, ends up to the decision points that she ends up at, right? Mm. Um, and I think it is only because uh, both Anders Danielson and Herbert Nordrum uh, did a phenomenal job at embodying their characters and what those characters stand for, without again ever hitting you over the head with it
0: yes yes exactly man um, agreed on all points that's why it's my number one film of the year you can uh, rent it on VOD at a variety of places any places that have VOD you know your Amazons or movies or whatever you can get it there as well as on the Projector Plus if you live in Singapore mm-hmm. um, yeah uh, that was our number one film of the mid year so far. We'll see if anything tops that in the next six months. Yeah. Um anything like in the next six months that catches your eye that you think has a chance to be in your top ten overall oh, for, for films. For, uh, for year and year. Yeah. Yeah for films.
1: Oh man. Um films
0: is tougher, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think films is tougher um as far as goes. I'm not really sure what else is making rounds for the festival circuit later in the year because we're gonna be starting a new year soon. Uh, That's true. Yeah. so i think we won't really see many of those till like much later in the year right the next couple of months are going to be fairly dry as far as like festival stuff goes on mm. um but no i don't see any of the big blockbusters topping uh at least our top five for now right uh yeah. all the way up, up to come on come on i hope i improved wrong but at the moment nothing on my radar as of yet what about you
0: um, there's a film by Olivia Wilde that is coming soon. It's mm-hmm. called Don't Worry, Darling. Um, uh. It stars... Um, it stars... Uh, fuck, what's his name? Harry Styles mm-hmm. and Florence Pugh. Um, I know nothing about the premise. Basically, it's about a 1950s couple yep. in a, in a utopian community. Um, and I'm not sure what it's about. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Olivia Wilde directed one of my favourite films... Or one of my favourite comedies of the last few years called Books so So... Yep. I'm excited for that. Um, obviously Jordan Peele's latest film, uh, with no synopsis Ooh, again,
1: in... yeah, another
0: one. <laughs> yeah, and an animated premise holds the promise that it could be a great one. Um, David Cronenberg's latest also, you know, holds the promise that it could be a great one also. So those are the, the big three that I'm looking at la. But mm-hmm. what comes at the end of the year, we we won't know yet but, Yeah. You know, coming in July and August, I'm looking forward to those three films.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those those definitely sound sound like. Possible, possible. Uh, it's gonna yeah. be hard to to knock worst person in the wall. I think, and I'm looking forward for anyone, uh, any any movie that can
0: yes yes uh definitely um now we wrap up the episode with our recommendations for what's been catching your eyes and ears uh in the month of june um anything that you like to shout out that we won't already be talking about in in the coming months
1: yeah Yeah. we just talked about this yesterday but uh i i watched hustle adam sandler's new uh nba netflix uh, movie on netflix i fully enjoyed it right like honestly after um um Uncut Gems? Uncut Gems, yeah. Like, fully anything Adam Sandler is down to doing. I I mean, it is so strange for me to have seen the majority of his movies growing up and other nonsense that he got up to in those movies. And then, like, Mm. in my older years, be a completely different kind of fan, right? Yeah. I really enjoyed his performance. I have to say that, honestly, uh, it's worth a watch, especially if you're kind of into the NBA. Uh, you mm. know, uh, congratulations to the Warriors for their uh, and Curry for li- lifting another title. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. I think there were a lot of like great moments just for him to kind of flex that uh, dramatic side of him that we saw in Uncut Gems, but in a much less not not. Lower stakes necessary. Well, they are lower stakes la, but not not lower stakes necessary. But a less tense, non-softy brothers, uh, um, franchise. So it was really right. good. I enjoyed that, like basketball and like dramatic Adam Sandler. I'm down for it. Uh, I caught mm. that. I really enjoyed it. And if you love those things, then I think uh, you might enjoy it too.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. What
1: else? Oh, yeah. Iron Chef coming back is uh, big news for me. Always been a big Iron Chef fan. Not so much of the American mm. one. Uh, mm-hmm. I constantly re the original Japanese ones. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Elton Brown is online. I'm a big fan. Uh, with uh, Or he's on board with this new Iron Chef. It's entertaining. Uh, for sure. Um, mm. I've caught that. And uh, a really kind of strange side note. I, I think it's Blacklist's last the blacklist last season uh, oh just I thought out. it ended early for some reason yeah so this uh, it just I think it was earlier in the year but I only caught it recently uh, mm-hmm. and the only reason I decided to finish it up because like Caesar like from they kind of lost the plot from like season 5 onwards but I watched through it anyway because I right. love 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 James um, uh, yeah so I finished kind of that up and like after like so many years and all the investments are there I thought okay it ended okay you know like uh at the end mm. of the day it's mm-hmm. nothing like phenomenal all of that i watched it for one actor and one actor only and he continues yeah. to deliver every season but everything else mm. is just not worth your time you know but i i spent the time anyway so that's pretty much Absolutely. it uh as yeah. far as like things that we won't possibly cover
0: yeah yeah you know um the blacklist reminds me of like why i kept watching house in like season eight because yeah. you know
1: yeah, exactly. Dr.
0: House is so great, and Hugh Laurie is so great. Although, like, the show clearly went downhill. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, <laughs> when a lead actor is that compelling? Sure, you know. Um, same thing with stuff like Boston Legal, once again, oh, because James Spader. Yes, know? because,
1: right? yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'll watch most stuff that James Spader will do. It's insane that he carried a franchise for more than a decade, more or less on yeah. his own. Uh, It's kind of nuts. So, yeah. you know. I mean, like, he, he stuck around and he made the effort and I, I love him. So, I'm going to watch and just milk every character moment that he has because it's mm. so fucking good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, speaking of um Julie Bowen, she was in uh, Boston Eagle as well. Yeah. Um... Yeah, uh, my recommendations, number one um, of all the recommendations is a new mockumentary by the creators of American Vandal Yeah. Called Players. Uh, Players is great. The first four episodes are out right now. They dropped the first four and then after that it will be weekly. It is a mockumentary following the world of esports, particularly a League of Legends team going after their first LCS championship. And there is huge drama within the team. Their uh, team leader, nicknamed uh, Cream Cheese, who has been a veteran Pro player for over 10 years. He's now 27, is now about to be usurped by the newest member of the team mm-hmm. called Organism, who is a 17-year-old prodigy. Um, and it deals with the team drama behind the scenes and and, and, and everything. La. And you would think that coming from American Vandal, that this would be a comedy mockumentary uh, that kind of pokes fun at the sports documentary genre and at esports. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right on the first uh on the first part. It does poke fun at sports, uh, <laughs> documentary tropes. Yeah. Uh, that is his main target. But surprisingly, it takes the world of esports very seriously and very earnestly. It never mocks the players. It never mocks the games. It never mocks the culture. It takes it very, very seriously. In fact, to the point where players surprisingly is eighty percent drama and twenty percent comedy. Amazing. Um, it is. You will be so engrossed that you think this is a real thing like I, I it was so dramatic and it, it takes its subject so seriously but sometimes i forget that this is a mockumentary <laughs> um where some of my favorite mockumentaries like spinal tap or what we do in the shadows or whatever right yep. you, you always know it's a mockumentary mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. same thing with american vandal yeah with this i don't i can't sometimes i i can't tell the difference it's that good you know and i think the american vandal uh creators have sort of like um gotten the, the hang of the visual grammar of making documentaries, because I think they're big fans as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, it, it works really, really well. Um, secondly, speaking of satires of very famous genres, um, Only Murders in the Building is back oh, in yeah. season 2. Mm-hmm. It is a satire of true crime podcasts. Um. I think the freshman season of Only Murders in the Building kind of unexpectedly turned out to be one of the breakout hits of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of anchored by the incredible, irresistible chemistry of Steve Martin, Martin Short and Selena Gomez who are this mismatched, generally divided uh, true crime podcast obsessives who decide yeah. to launch their own podcast to investigate the killing of their neighbour. Um, season 2 um, flips the thing entirely on its head by making its three leads the suspect of a different murder. Mm-hmm. Um, so now they are the subjects. <laughs> um, but at the same time the three, uh, like one of the one of the characters Charles, you know, played by uh, Martin Short, hilariously notes that they have the rare opportunity to do a sequel to the original crime, yeah. Where most true crime podcasts, quote unquote, move on to a new case that never hits like the original. So not only does the season parody true crime podcast genre, but it also parodies the difficulty of making the second season of a hit show. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is extremely meta because the writers of Only Murders in the Building themselves are having difficulty writing a second season for the hit <laughs> show. They, uh, it is a messier season uh, with a bunch of like, you know, they, they try a lot of different things. Uh, yeah. And there are some filler episodes based on individual characters here. Uh, but at the same time, they acknowledge it because the fans of Only Murders in the Building, the podcast, not not the fans of the show, yeah. but the fans of the podcast in the universe, mm-hmm. also complain about the filler episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um so it's i don't know whether it's intentional or whether it's unintentional or whether they made that mistake and then they're like we should probably wink at it you know yeah uh but despite the messier mystery and some narrative details only murders in the building continues to be one of the quirkiest and coziest and most joyous things on streaming tv right now particularly because it's of the collective chemistry of steve martin martin short and selena gomez who are obviously having the time of their lives (laughs) making this it's it's a very pleasurable experience. Finally, on the TV side, I want to recommend P-Valley also, which is also in the second season. P-Valley is by Katari Hall. It is adapted from her play, Pussy Valley, which is about the lives of strippers and the owners of a strip club called The Pink mm-hmm. in the Mississippi Delta down south. Um, it's great. if uh, It's not at all like Hustlers. It's more... Slice of life, you know, there is yeah. no like heist or whatever. You know. <laughs> uh, but it's just about the lives and music and careers of strippers and strip club owners and the community around the Mississippi Delta yeah. in the dirty south. Um, it's really great. Uh season two kind of goes in a little different direction. It really leans heavily into Southern Gothic. There's a lot of uh supernatural elements going on, which I didn't expect, but it's cool as well. Mm-hmm. It's integrated very well into into the characters because of their culture. Like. Their culture they, they believe in it, so we believe in it too. Okay. Um, finally, on the film side, I want to recommend Hikazu Koreeda's latest film. He was the director of Shoplifters, mm. which we actually also reviewed on what? Behold, on right? Behold, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, the director of Shoplifters is back with yet another empathetic uh, film called Broker. Um, and it is another kind of empathetic portrait of a, of a found family. Living in the fringes mm-hmm. of uh, of South Korean society, uh, what does broker refer to? It refers to baby brokers. Weirdly enough, um, so it it follows this kind of baby box facility. Do you know what a baby box facility is? Nope. Okay. Um, a baby box facility is uh an uh, a sort of community service uh, that South Korea provides. It is uh a space where parents. Can give up unwanted children anonymously. Enormous, you know. Right. So rather than like jump dumping them in the dumpster or something, you know, for a fifteen year old who's not ready to give birth or whatever, right? You could put the baby in a safe space, and then uh, child care workers would take care of them, and then you know, give them to foster parents or orphanages or whatever. Mm-hmm. So one night, this lady, this this young girl, abandons a child in a baby box, and two people who work in a baby box facility secretly take him away to sell him to desperate parents. They are baby brokers. Um, unsurprisingly though The baby's mother Actually comes back For her child mm. One thing One thing The kid back mm-hmm. But upon discovering That the baby brokers Will be paid A hefty sum of money For the child She actually decides To join them In their rickety van To find her son A caring home um, Improbably Coriada actually manages To infuse This dark premise With a lot of warmth And kindness Uh, What begins with uh, a crime caper, as a crime caper, evolves into a road trip odyssey, kind of reflecting on the family we choose and the family we must tearfully let go of. It's a very non-judgmental look at the Korean grey market for adoption, and it finds kindness in every single character. In typical Koreada Koreada fashion, we come to care for these baby-selling criminals when their fundamental decency is brought to light when dealing with others in need on their road trip. Uh, and they themselves reconfigure into a kind of a stas family. Um, so, yeah, another great one from Hikazu. Cool. Korea, yeah, um, those are our recommendations for this month. Uh, we'll be back actually very soon. Yes. Uh, for a new episode of uh, Genre Equality. Uh, what sticks out to you and what are you most excited to talk about?
1: Ooh, uh, well, I'm super, well, not super excited to talk about Obi Wan Kenobi, but I would like to talk about Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, so, no oh, spoilers mm. there. Uh, yeah. for sure. I am very interested to hear what you and Hardy have to say about Strange New Worlds. So far, it's been glowing reviews all round, so I want to know mm. what the two Trekkies uh, on our side have to say about that. I personally have not embarked on it yet, uh, but mm. I am looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say. Uh yeah, super excited to talk about anime. Uh, this uh coming episode of General Equality, but I'm going to dive into uh, some of the best stuff that's come up. Maybe a couple of like really quirky hidden gems. Uh, mm. and how Spy X Family is. Uh, Spy Family is the one of the best anime that's come out in a while, but it is not the best anime of this season. Um, definitely, definitely, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we'll we'll jump into that, and uh, hits will also jump into kind of like weigh in on uh, what is my favorite anime of the season, uh, and mm. apparently is his as well. Uh, and yeah, uh, looking forward to getting into a slightly uh, crunchier, I guess, uh, anime corner this time.
0: Around. Yes. Uh, plus I'll talk about Jurassic World Dominion and Lightyear, uh, two films I recently saw in cinemas which disappointed me yeah. I'll also talk about the current season of Umbrella Academy which debuts this coming Wednesday mm-hmm. uh, well, tomorrow uh, uh, on yes. <laughs> Netflix um, I'll also talk about Spider hit which is Joseph Kaczynski's uh, latest film after yep. Top Gun Maverick and after spending uh, what appears to be my entire lifetime watching <laughs> the latest season of Stranger Things <laughs> uh, I feel obligated to talk about it yeah. although I don't want to spend more of my life talking about Stranger Things but hey it's a big topic it's Final season and everything, yeah, but yeah. you know, I've I kind of entered this time warp where suddenly months have passed and sin things is still going on. You know, yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll talk about that. Um, also, I'll be bringing back quick hits classics, so I'll talk about two older anime, uh, including Ping Pong the animation oh, yeah. and uh something that I've only recently caught. This is very shocking. It's Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, a very famous anime
3: mm-hmm.
0: that I've only recently watched. So I'll talk about that as well. Awesome. Uh yeah. Um. Till next time. This has been Hit
1: Zero. Uh, Goodbye,
0: guys.